Saul Blinkoff is a Disney film director, producer, animator, and the host of a weekly inspirational podcast called Life of Awesome. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife and kids. He says a tour-observant lifestyle gives him a different perspective on his work. There's nothing more freeing than to wake up every day knowing that I'm not going for the gold statue, that I'm trying to use my abilities, talent, passion, whatever word you like, to put Jewish values, Torah values into the work that I do. Coming up on Saturday to Shabbos, we'll hear how Saul Blinkoff does that and how he took on Jewish observance while he was working on some of Disney's most memorable animated films. Saul, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much, Jeff. So good to be here with you. We appreciate the time. We're super excited to hear your journey towards observance. And I want to take it right from the top. Just tell me where you were raised. Where were you born? Uh, I grew up in New York. Yeah, the five towns, Long Island. You know, when I grew up, I was conservative or conservadox. I, I wasn't Shomer Shabbos yet, but my mom lit Shabbat candles and my dad would make Kiddush. And then I'd um, just go uh, watch a good movie or make a phone call or, but, uh, it was a beautiful home to grow up in my parents, love of Yiddishkeit and Israel. My parents went to Israel every year. They took us to Israel many times, but I really did live in a bubble when I eventually left New York and went to school in Ohio. It was really a different world for me. So tell me as a kid, you had some of these customs going on in your home. Which ones were you connecting with or understanding or enjoying? Which ones did you really like as a kid? As far as Jewishly? Yeah. Um, yeah. Music was a big deal. My mom is a retired uh, chazanit, a cantor. She was a cantor in Philadelphia, one of the first female cantors in Philadelphia. And my grandfather was a cantor also in the conservative world. And Jewish music was really a big deal for me. I'll tell you what really got me started. The night before my bar mitzvah, I remember my grandmother, my bubby, my late grandmother, she said to me the night before, she says, are you nervous? And I said, yeah. And she goes, don't worry. If you make a mistake, nobody's going to know. <laughs> and I remember pointing up to Shemayim to the heavens and saying, but won't he know? So for whatever reason, I always had an awareness of, of God. I always had an awareness. I never went through a, is God real or not? I always had an awareness as a young child that uh, that he was out there. And, and that was something that always kind of guided me. When I got to high school, I went to Hewlett High School, a public school, and there was you know, definitely a large percentage of Jews, not observant Jews, but there was a club, an after-school activity called the Hebrew Club. And my mom was always like, oh, you got to go do a club. You got to do a club. It looks good for colleges. So I'm like, oh, I'll go to the Hebrew Club. We'll see what that is. You know, I'm a Jewish kid. Let me go to that. And when I walked in the first day after school, you know, in the cafeteria there, they had a giant bowl of potato chips and like a big cold two liter thing of Coke. And I'm like, ooh, this is perfect. I get to eat snacks and drink Coke. <laughs> That's perfect. And there were two people running it who went to uh, the modern Orthodox school nearby. The, or actually, I think they were in Queens College now that I think about it. And me not knowing it was actually kind of a key roof thing. It was an outreach thing. And one of the guys there saw that I loved Jewish music and he gave me a cassette. And um, on the cassette, there was one side was Schlock Rock, Lenny Solomon, 
and he had some incredible music and there were some English songs on there, a parody song, but there was also a song about getting ready for Shabbos and Jewish pride and just this beautiful album. Actually, the album was called Emuna. And on the other side, get ready, drum roll, was the Miami Boys Choir. <laughs> and uh, it had the old Miami Boys Choir music from the 90s. And let me tell you, that cassette I played a gajillion times. And when I eventually went away to college, on Friday nights, I knew it was Shabbat, but I wasn't keeping Shabbat. But I used to play that tape. And the music really, really had an impact on me. And eventually... I bought lots of Miami Boys Choir albums throughout the years, and a lot of their music played a role in bringing me closer to living a Torah life. So at that point, what would you say was your perspective on Orthodox Judaism? You weren't yet there. You were at the beginning of the journey. How would, how would you say the person at that age would have viewed it? First of all, you know, I've been interviewed on many, many podcasts, and you're asking me questions no one has ever asked me, and I really appreciate it. You know, if you grow up in the unobservant Jewish world, most reform and conservative kids are going to Hebrew school. So you go to public school during the week and then you go to Hebrew school. And I don't know any kid that went to Hebrew school that enjoyed it. Hebrew school was like, it's the last place you want to be. You go to school all day. Who wants to go to another school and sit in a classroom? And uh, I went to Hebrew school. Uh, I think it was two days a week and then Sunday mornings. Ugh, who wants to wake up early Sunday to go to Hebrew school? And... Um, I remember in Hebrew school, in the five towns, I went to Brandeis Hebrew High School. And one day we did this thing called the sukkah hop. And I grew up in a home where we had a sukkah. So I didn't think that was such an orthodox thing. But when we went to this one person's sukkah, I remember walking in and he had a long black coat and a big red beard and a black hat. It was the first time I'd ever seen that. And his wife came out and she was dressed modestly. But when I saw all the kids... And they were modest and polite and they weren't caught up in the secular world. I just remember, Jeff, feeling like there's something going on here that's really special. I just remember that. And that was it. I left the sukkah and it was gone. By the way, I also went to a Camp Ramah in the Poconos, a conservative camp. It was a Shomer Shabbat camp. So in camp, I wasn't allowed to turn on lights. But when I got home, I was. You know, or in camp, it was like, okay, you say Birkat Hamazon after you eat bread, but at home, you don't really have to. Only on Shabbat, you do that. Or you wear a kippah when you're doing things that are Jewish, but you you wouldn't wear that if you were playing sports, right? That's kind of where I uh, I came from. So, uh, so I'm curious, <laughs> as a child, and I think we had similar experiences where you're just going along with what your parents are doing and you're not asking questions. And then suddenly you come to a point you start saying, okay, my parents had me on this journey, but what is Judaism going to mean in my life and what decisions am I going to make for myself? So is there a point where you started sort of making that break from what you learned through your parents to start making your own decisions? Yeah. Let me give you a little background first of all. So when I was growing up in New York, uh, I was 11 years old and I went to the movies and I saw the movie E.T. And when I saw that movie, it, it inspired me to want to become a filmmaker and I remember tapping my mom at the end of the movie. I'm like, Mom, that's what I want to do someday. And she looks at me. She's like, what, you want to leave planet Earth in a spaceship? I'm like, no, Mom. <laughs> I want to be a filmmaker. And then I went to the library. 
and I got books on filmmaking, cameras, lenses, storyboarding. I found out that the director of E.T. is a Jewish guy, Steven Spielberg. I thought, oh, if he could do it, I could do it too. Mm-hmm. And so every weekend I started making movies with kids in the neighborhood. I got a video camera. I got my twin sister, my older brother, and I'm making movies every weekend, murder movies, monster movies. And then I get to high school, and I remember somebody comes up to me in high school, and they're like, what are you going to do when you get out of high school? I'm like, well, I want to be a filmmaker. They're like, no, you don't. I'm like, yeah, I do. They're like, no, you don't, because if you want to be a filmmaker, you're going to have to move out to Hollywood. And Hollywood, they said to me, is filled with strange weirdos. And they looked at me and said, you don't want to end up a weirdo, do you? And right then and there, I was like, no, I don't want to end up a weirdo. And I gave up on my dream of wanting to be a filmmaker because one person told me I would end up a weirdo. Then I went to the movies again a year later, and I saw another movie that changed my life. I saw the movie, The Little Mermaid. And when I saw that movie, I'm like, that's what I want to do. See, because it combines my love of drawing and my love of filmmaking, put it together, animation. And plus, I found out that Disney has a studio in Orlando, Florida. I don't have to go out to L.A. So there I was, Jeff. I'm a junior in high school, and I knew that my dream was to become a Disney animator. So I didn't know how to do it. You know, today you want to become a Disney animator, you go to Google, and you type in, how do you become a Disney animator? (laughs) And you'll get the answer pretty quickly. Back then, there was no such thing as the internet. That's right, people. No such thing as Wi-Fi, (laughs) YouTube, smartphones. None of it existed. I didn't have those things, but I did have the most supportive parents. And my mom took me, not my older brother, not my twin sister, took me on a trip to Disney World just to walk me around and find out how her son could become a Disney animator. And I remember we're getting on the It's a Small World boat ride. And we're stepping on that boat. The lady says to my mom, how many people in your party? And we're getting on the boat. I'm like, two. My mom's like, by the way, my son wants to be a Disney animator. Can you help him? You know, very Jewish mom. It was actually very embarrassing. But, you know, it's because my mom got out of her comfort zone and asked that question that we got the answer. And the woman said, well, if you want to work at Disney, you got to go to the Disney casting building. It's like four minutes away from where we were in Disney World. So I ended up going to this building. Eventually, I have an interview And they tell me, look, we don't hire Disney animators. We hire people that work the rides, that work in the parks, the Disney parks. But if you want to work at Disney in animation, you're going to need this. And the woman takes out a piece of paper. And that piece of paper she handed me was a list of eight schools, eight art schools that Disney recruits their artists from. She says, if you want to be a Disney animator, you need to go to one of these art schools. So my mom took me on a trip to each of these art schools to see which would be a good fit for me. And I get to one school, Columbus, Ohio, called the Columbus College of Art and Design. And I'm telling you, Jeff, like the artwork on the walls there was a hundred times better than anything I could ever do. I felt intimidated. Mm -hmm. Like, why would I want to go to a school where I would be the worst one at the school? And I'm telling you, if I chose that school, I would have been one of the worst artists there. Because the students' work was incredible. I remember the guy touring me around. He showed me the artwork on the walls, and it was so amazing. And I said to him, wow. Your seniors are so talented. He says, Saul, every piece of artwork that you see on the walls was done by our freshman class. They were only a year or two older than me, and they were a hundred times better than me. And even though I felt intimidated, I remember thinking, you know what? If I go to a school like this, then I'll become a better artist. And I chose the school, and thank God they chose me. So I go to the school. And I remember walking in the first day and I walk into this one guy's room and he's got Mickey Mouse slippers. And I'm like, what kind of guy wears Mickey Mouse slippers? He's got a Mickey Mouse bedspread, Mickey Mouse 
like telephone, Mickey Mouse lunchbox. It was literally Disney World in a room. And I'm looking at the guy's drawings, and they're drawings of Mickey Mouse, all these drawings of Mickey. I never drew Mickey Mouse before in my life. I felt intimidated. And I turned to leave the guy's room, and I bump into the guy whose room it is. Uh-oh, I'm busted. <laughs> so I, I look at him, I go, hey, man, I'm, I'm sorry. And he looks at me and goes, huh, how are you doing? <laughs> and I said, I'm good. What's your name? He says, my name, my name is Jason, but people call me Mickey Mouse Jason. I'm like, they call you what? He goes, Mickey Mouse. I'm like, you have a Disney nickname? He's like, what? You don't? I'm like, no, I don't. I go back to my room. I get on the phone. My mom like, mom, if I'm going to fit in the school, you got to get me Disney slippers like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> like, you have to remember, this is before Pixar existed, before DreamWorks existed. Right. If you wanted a job at animation, it was Disney. And a week later, a Disney representative comes from the Walt Disney Studios, stands on the stage in the auditorium in our school, and every student is in the room. And he looks out to us, and there's like 750 students, every freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior. And the Disney guy looks out to us and says, how many of you want to work at Disney? And every hand went up. He said, just so you know, out of the 750 of you, maybe, just maybe four of you will ever work there. That's how competitive it is. And I remember when he said that, I thought one thing. I wonder who the other three are going to be. <laughs> That's confident. Because, yeah, because I say to my kids, like, you know, in life, you either believe in yourself that you can accomplish something, like deep down, or you don't. And at that point, Jeff, in my life, you know, whether it was the support of my parents or my art teachers, my friends, I, I believed in myself. Then he said, if you want to work at Disney, you got to get the Disney internship. No internship, no Disney. And in order to get the internship, we want to see a portfolio filled, 25 pages filled with hundreds of drawings of humans and animals from life. No cartoon characters, and especially, he said, no drawings of Mickey Mouse. <laughs> And I remember looking back and you could see Mickey Mouse Jason back there slouched in his chair. And he's like, oh boy, you know. <laughs> so I go through this crazy story, Jeff, where a sophomore year, I get my best drawings together. I sent them into Disney and I got rejected. I didn't even care. I was just a sophomore. I wanted to go through the process. Junior year. I uh, get my portfolio together and my best friend, Andy, he's like the best artist in the school. The guy's amazing. He gets his drawings together. I get mine together. We send them into Disney and we wait. And uh, a couple weeks later, I get a call and it's Andy on the phone. And he tells me that he got the internship. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's wow. incredible. Congratulations. It was amazing. He's like, but you didn't hear? I'm like, no. But they could be trying to call me right now. I got to hang up. So... Um, Anyway, I eventually call up the head of Disney myself. And, uh, you know, I always think to myself, like, who does that? Well, I did. And I find out that I did not get in. My best friend got in, and I didn't. And I gave up on the entire dream. And then a buddy calls me up and says, Saul, I got tickets to go see a movie. You want to go? I'm like, I'm not in the mood. He's like, but they're free. I'm like, oh, okay, then I'll go. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the movies, and sometimes you see a movie, and it's the right movie for the right time in your life. And I saw this movie, and it's a true story about a guy who's five feet tall, he's not athletic, and he wants to play football at one of the greatest universities in the world at the time, Notre Dame. And he gets rejected and rejected and rejected. And some of you listening know the name of the movie. You're probably screaming it to your radios right now or your iPhones. The movie's called Rudy. And he gets into Notre Dame. And I'm watching that movie, Jeff, and tears are streaming down my face. Because all I'm thinking is, if an unathletic guy could get into Notre Dame with an insane amount of hard work, then me, 
what I thought was an untalented artist could get into Disney with an insane amount of hard work. And so I decided right there, I would never give up again. As a matter of fact, I called up the Disney studios the next day. I got the same guy on the phone and I asked him, how close was I to getting in? He said, Saul, we picked 17 from over 3,800 portfolios around the world and you made it to number 20. That's close. What? I'd only missed it by three. And then I asked him the million dollar question. Why didn't I get in? And the head of Disney told me, Saul, you got to work on your figure drawing and to draw the model and animals from a different perspective, not just where your eyes are, but stand on a stool and look down at a person or go down and look up at a person. Give me a dynamic perspective. Answer key. That's what I needed to know. So I went to the zoo and I drew elephants. I remember the freezing cold and I drew people everywhere, bus stops, and I got my portfolio together and eventually I did get into the Walt Disney Studios. I got the internship, started working on the film Pocahontas, was the first movie I got to work on in the 90s. Incredible movie. This is BF, before Frozen. (laughs) And uh, it was during the Hunchback of Notre Dame that one of the greatest things happened. Uh, My mom and dad called me up and said, uh, you have any vacation time coming up? I'm like, yeah. They're like, well, why don't you come to Israel with us? And I'd been to Israel a couple times before but never really as an adult. So I go to Israel with my parents and I'm in a bagel shop in the uh, old city. It was called Bonkers Bagels. And uh, while I was in there, this is crazy story, how God runs the world. In walks a guy who looks like my age and he's wearing a baseball hat with the New York Knicks logo. And I love the Knicks growing up. So we started talking about basketball. And then I asked him, what are you doing here in Israel? And he says, I'm in a yeshiva. I'm like, yeshiva? You don't look like a yeshiva guy. Yeshiva guy got like the curls coming near his ears and those fringes coming out of his clothes with black pants and a white shirt. You don't look like that. You look like a quote unquote normal guy. He said, I'm here because I want to find out how I fit in to the Jewish people. And I remember asking him like, what do you mean fit in? He said, I was raised a certain way. My parents decided how I was going to be raised Jewishly. He said, now that I'm an adult, I want to find out what Judaism means to me. And I remember when he said that, Jeff, I felt like envious. Like here I had my dream job at Disney, everything I could have wanted. But I remember being envious of this guy who was in the old city learning. I remember he even said, I'm here learning in yeshiva. And I never heard that word learning. I heard the word studying before. You always Mm -hmm. study because you have a test coming up. But to learn just for the sake of acquiring knowledge, I was inspired by that idea. So I ended up going back to Disney, finished working on Hunchback. Then I worked on the movie Mulan for three years. After Mulan, we were going to work on Tarzan, and we had a break between the movies where they weren't ready for the animators to go on to the movie. They call it downtime. <laughs> I always tell people, anyone ever offers you a job with downtime, take the job. <laughs> because they were working on the script. We had nothing to draw. So I used to go, you know, you know what downtime is in Disney World, Jeff? You're riding roller coasters, man. (laughs) It's Space Mountain, Big Thunder Mountain, Splash Mountain. I became quite the mountaineer at Disney. (laughs) And, um, And I remember downtime turned into six months. They said, you don't even have to come into the studio anymore. We'll call you when there's work. So me and one of my friends... One pool that was our favorite was the Disney Beach Club. It has one of these current pools like these, right? Mm -hmm. Lazy rivers. (laughs) And I'm in this pool. It's a true story. I'm floating on my back. And I got a cold drink in my hand. 
And I'm telling you, Jeff, I had every single thing I could have wanted in my life. I had my dream job. I had an incredible girlfriend who I later married. I had my friends. I lived at Disney World. You know what they call Disney World? The happiest place on earth. On earth. Right? I'm living there. Not visiting. I live in Disney World. And I'm telling you, while I was in that pool that day, something was missing. And all of a sudden, I remembered the envious feeling I had years earlier when I was in that bagel shop in Israel. I got out of the pool. And uh, a week later, I was on a plane to Israel to go learn in a program called Israelite with two rabbis, Rabbi Benny Friedman and Rabbi David Aaron. And I go to this program. There's me and like three other guys seven women and we're all there just to learn about Judaism and from then on I was inspired to continue to start learning look I got my dream of becoming a Disney animator out of college but believe me when I got back from Israel there were more goals to set I wanted to be a husband I wanted to be a father what kind of a father do I want to be what kind of a husband do I want to be ultimately what I learned is that in order to figure out the answers we need an instruction manual you're having all these aha experiences in Israel and you're coming back and like that fire is lit. That's right. So there's a difference between getting inspired and then taking concrete actions on a journey towards observance. So where is that moment where it crosses over from, wow, I'm learning all this cool stuff to I want to take some real steps here and change the, the way that I'm living? So I go back to Disney and the first thing I decide to do is Friday nights, I'm not going to the movies anymore. I'm going to stay home and I'm going to start reading that book that everyone's talking about. So I got myself my first stone chumash. And every week I would read the Parsha that the entire Jewish people were reading around the world. And then, this is crazy, I get an opportunity to meet with MTV. They're looking for a director. And I didn't want to just draw anymore. I wanted to be a director. And my goal was not to work at MTV. I wanted to work at Disney as a director. But... MTV says, come to New York and meet with us. So I go to New York and I meet with MTV and they offer me my first directing job. So I leave Disney and I come to Manhattan and I got to find a place to live. And I find out like the Jewish community is in the Upper West Side. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's Jews everywhere in New York, but the Upper West Side is like, if you're single, that's a great place. And so I walk into a building called the Key West. It's 96 in Columbus. And why did I pick that one? Because there was a logo of palm trees and it reminded me of Florida. And it was like <laughs> freezing cold then. So I'm like, you know, at least I could convince myself I'm close to Florida. So I walk in there and on the bulletin board, there's no available apartment. Just then, this is where Hashem runs the world. At least when we're aware of it because he always does. Some guy puts a, a card on the wall. He's looking for a roommate. And I said to him, you got to take that card down. He's like, why? I go, because I'm your roommate. <laughs> he goes, well, not so fast. He goes, are you Shomer Shabbos? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, turning on lights and all these things. I'm like, oh, like what I did at Camp Ramah growing up. Uh, I'm not really Shomer Shabbos. He's like, oh, then we're looking for a Shomer Shabbos roommate. I said, oh, then I'll be Shomer Shabbos. Wow. He goes, really? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And I always knew that there was something to Shomer Shabbos, but I never had the courage to go, I'm going all in. 
But did you understand what you were signing up for when you said that, exactly what it was going to entail? Well, I just thought it was like, in my room, I'll do what I need to do, but out there in the common space, I'll do the kosher or whatever they want me to do. I mean, I knew I wanted to try it out as an adult, and I was ready to take that leap, and I fell in love with Shabbos. People hosting their meals. My girlfriend, who was living at Disney, she moved from Florida she got an apartment at the Westmont across the street. She went to Israelite on a program. She started to grow and become observant. I still remember walking home and seeing her Shabbos candles in the window. I'll never forget that feeling. My wife and I got married and we moved out to LA and I returned to Disney as a director. And the first movie I directed was a Winnie the Pooh movie. And the very first day on that movie, there's a big drawing of the hundred acre wood where Winnie the Pooh lives. And I, as the director, have to sign the drawing to approve it so it can go to the color department to get painted. And I look at it, and Winnie the Pooh's house, he lives in a tree, and I'm like, everything looks good. Everyone leaves the room, I sign it, and I think to myself, wait, Disney artists, like, they hide things in the movies. Don't tell me I'm that's true. Something. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some of it is. Some of it is. Some of it's not. So I'm like, well, I have to be part of that Disney legacy. So I sharpen the pencil. I go over to Winnie the Pooh's house. And next to his doorway, I drew in a mezuzah. Oh, that's awesome. I hid a mezuzah. So now he's not Winnie the Pooh. He's Winnie the Jew. <laughs> True story. Beautiful. And then the next movie I directed was Kronk's New Groove, the sequel to Emperor's New Groove. I'm reading the script. It says Kronk gets married. I'm like, this is great. I'll give him a chuppah. So I got my wedding album, the chuppah, the calla lily flowers that my wife likes. And when you watch the movie, there's a moment where Kronk steps on the glass. Mazel tov. It's in the movie. <laughs> And, you know, look, you know, Jeff, people ask me a lot. They're like, so how do you live in Hollywood and balance living an observant Jewish life? And to me, it's the easiest answer. It's how could you not? I live in a town where people are working hard for that little gold statue. There's nothing more freeing than to wake up every day and knowing that I'm not going for the gold statue, that I'm trying to use my abilities, talent, passion, whatever word you like, to put Jewish values, Torah values into the work that I do. You know, Jeff, you asked before about when those light switches go off. I got to tell you about one more. And that's when I walked into Asia Torah. And uh, it was between Mincha Mariv, afternoon and evening service. And all the guys were there and they were learning. And I tapped this one guy and I said, excuse me. And he turns behind him. He looks at me like he doesn't want to be bothered. But, you know, I tapped him anyway. And I go, excuse me, what are you doing? And he says, learning, and turns back around. <laughs> I tap him again. He looks back at me. He goes, yeah? And I go, what are you learning? He says, Torah, and looks back again. <laughs> I tap him a third time. I said, so, teach me Torah. And he started teaching me. And Friday night at his home, we opened up Pirkei Avos and started going through the missions of Pirkei Avos. Every Friday night at his home, like I'd leave my wife and kids, it's late at night, and I go to his home, he lives down the block from me, and we get Coca-Cola and a glass bottle and chocolate chip <laughs> cookies that his wife would make, and we would learn together till one, two, sometimes three in the morning, going really slow over every line. Today, I live in a, a beautiful Jewish community in LA, the Pico Robertson area, and my wife and I host many, many people for Shabbos. My kids have been raised in a home where they know Shabbos is the time we open up our home and we invite people in who aren't observant and we share. And we share not just our food, but we share Torah. You know, it's like, psh, what could be better? 
<laughs> it's beautiful. My guest today is Saul Blinkoff. Saul, I have one more question for you, and then we're going to close with what we like to call our lightning round. So the okay. the last question I wanted to ask you is, given like where you are in the journey, this amazing experience that you've been having, what is on the horizon for you in the next two, three years? What do you want to see happen from a Jewish standpoint for you, your family? What are you looking to accomplish? I have this podcast that I just started in January called Life of Awesome. And while it's not a Jewish podcast, because I wanted it to be something that the mainstream world could access, it's my way of sharing Torah values with the world. You know, if it comes off too Jewish, people will be like, eh, too Jewish, I can't, especially the Jews out there. They don't even want to hear it, you know? <laughs> eh, it's too Jewish. Don't, don't give me guilt. Some of the guests that I bring on, I just interviewed George Foreman, the heavyweight champion of the world. He also made the Foreman Grill. And I'm telling you, his interview was just mind-blowing, how inspiring and humble and the values that he has. It was like literally listening to a Rebbe. He was an incredible human being. I'm blown away. But one of the goals I have now is to really build that podcast audience to be able to share these Torah values with the bigger audience. The other thing that our family is doing now is, you know, my four kids, Baruch Hashem, are getting older. And I have two girls in high school. And just watching them find their own derech, their own confidence as they go through life. Like I have a daughter who's in Israel right now. And, you know, we took our kids to Israel a couple of years back, but now she's on a program, uh, an all girls program. And it's just beautiful to see her finding her own way. So I think that's one thing that I'm looking forward to now is seeing how uh, the nurturing and hopefully the confidence building that we're giving our children, they're able to express it individually themselves as they get to realize their own potential within the parameters of Torah. So uh, it's been a beautiful thing. And you get to see your kids breaking away to their own level of independence the same way you did it when you were growing up. And exactly. You have to be willing to let that happen. Yeah, exactly. That's beautiful. And um, my son, Asher, he's going to be 13 bar mitzvah this year, please God. But when he was six, we noticed uh, he had a beautiful voice for singing in harmony. And my wife and I thought, you know what, maybe he could be uh, a voiceover in an animated project. And when he was six, he couldn't read scripts yet. So how do you know a kid can do a voice in a movie? So he uh, auditions for a, a Sony movie and eventually booked it and was the main character in the Sony movie Hotel Transylvania 2. Wow. That little redhead kid is uh, is our son, Asher. And uh, one time I picked him up from school. It was Erev Shabbos, Friday afternoon. We had to get, I had to get home quickly to help prepare and help my wife. And I get a call on the way home that my wife's like, Sony wants you to bring him by the studio because he got to record like one more line. Remember, he goes in like once, like every month for like a couple hours to record, but they needed this one line to make this deadline, whatever it was. This is such a Hollywood story, right, Jeff? <laughs> so um, I pick him up and I take him to Sony and I got to get home, but he falls asleep in the back of our minivan. Uh-oh. And he's got that big black felt kippah with his Hebrew name, Asher Chaim, you know, over his head. And that's you know, like slumping on his, over his eye. He's asleep. And I pull into the Sony studios and the guy says, look, you're going to have to park over here and you're going to walk all the way to the other side. There's like 50 sound stages. It's like a mini city, a movie studio. And I said to the guy, I'm like, can I just park at the actual stage or recording? And I got the main character here. He's like, really? Who do you have? I go, well, I got Asher. He's like, whoa, no problem. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, thank you. So as I'm driving in, 
I hear him say to the other security guard, guess who he's got in there? Who? Usher. <laughs> he thought I had the R&B singer, Usher. I did not correct him. I was able to drive uh, right there, uh, right to the stage I wanted. But I bring it up because after he did that movie, the premiere of the movie was on Shabbos. And we told the studio, like, he won't be able to be there. And they really insist that he has to be there because it's part of their marketing campaign. I'm like, he can't be there. So they felt bad he couldn't be there. And on a Sunday, they gave him his own private screening on the Sony Studios, his own mini premiere with family and friends. And uh, he was able to, uh, you know, stick to his identity, which is a beautiful thing. And, you know, when you went to the Sony Studios, you looked on the wall, you saw pictures of the cast. It was like Selena Gomez, Adam Sandler, Andy Samberg. Asher Blinkoff, you know, <laughs> with his big kippah on. It was pretty cool. It's also amazing to have the maturity to not be crushed that you couldn't go to the premiere and make a good decision and not, not insist on going and then get rewarded with Sony doing the yeah, right thing. Yeah, that's true. It was definitely a test. And uh, yeah, he passed that one. That was easy. that was an easy one for him. There's other ones. <laughs> There's always a test. That's how Hashem tells us he loves us. He's always testing us. Saul, I want to thank you so much for the time. We're going to close with our lightning round. I'm going to ask you five super fast questions. Okay. Don't think too hard. Give me the first answer that comes to your mind, okay? Okay, here we go. Question number one. What is your favorite Jewish food? Uh, hamburger. It's not really Jewish food, is it? Okay, <laughs> Jewish food. Hold on. Uh, schmaltz herring. Boom. That's a little more Jewish than your first answer, That's so right. thank you. That's right. I also love chop liver. I love chop liver, but let's keep going. Lightning round. Sorry, <laughs> good, lightning good round. Good accent. That's a good lead into the second question. What is your favorite Hebrew or Yiddish word or expression? Easy. My license plate. Gishmak. <laughs> that's your license plate? Yeah, that's my license plate. Gishmak. I love it. That made your answer easy. Yeah. All right. Third question. What's your favorite Jewish holiday? Favorite Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. Easy. Yeah, why? Get to start over. It's the greatest gift God ever gave humanity. He's like, I know you made mistakes. Start over. You can be great. Do it again. Question four or five. What is your favorite mitzvah? Oh, toivel. I love toiveling. Yeah. And the reason I love to toil is because it seems so strange. You know, you're taking this pot, you're putting it in the water, and like it doesn't change it. It doesn't clean it, but it does. It's so beautiful and spiritual, and I, I love it. I love doing it with my kids. I love toiveling. All right, final question. Outside of the Kotel, what's your favorite place to visit in Israel? The greatest place I could be outside of the Kotel is Rav Yitzhak Berkowitz's office. When I get to sit and learn and schmooze with him, uh, it's the most incredible place to be. Wonderful. I thank you so much for the time, Saul. It's been a pleasure having you on. And all the best with your podcast. Thank you, Jeff, so much. Thanks. And to all your listeners, uh, you can check me out on Instagram, check out the podcast. And if you're ever in L.A., look me up for Shabbos. We'd love to host you. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys.
Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.